welcome again to Cornerstone Church. Uh, I'm Richard, one of the pastors here, um, and it is my privilege and pleasure um, just to stand before you guys, to look out into the crowd and see so many familiar faces, but also to see new faces. And so I'm always encouraged when I see uh, yeah, people visit for the first time because it, it really serves as an introduction to our family and our prayers that, that it wouldn't just be introducing people to one another, but it'd be introducing people to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so um, as we begin today, um, let us one more time go before our God in prayer, ask him to bless our time, um, and that it be enriching and edifying time to his people. Join me in prayer. Father, I recognize that I'm simply a man, that I don't possess the strength nor the ability to convince anyone one's heart you are, to utter words that would ultimately lead to transforming anyone's heart. Father, I can't do that. But God, what's impossible for me is not impossible for you. And so by faith, we stand here week after week and we just, we, we just ask that you would speak to us, Father. Would your word not simply fall on deaf ears, but would you open up our ears to truly hear what it is you have to say? And would our hearts no longer be hardened, Father? Would they be susceptible to your word being implanted in us, Lord, in the hopes that it would bear fruit to make us more like you? God, for me to assume that everybody that will sit under the sound of our voices here today is saved would be naive of me. And so I pray one thanking you that you've drawn people to yourself. There's so many other places that people could be right now, but Father, we know that if you are ultimately sovereign, that if in your providence you've drawn people to be here, right here and right now, that that is simply evidence of your grace and mercy towards them. So for those that do not know you, Jesus, I pray that today that they would not leave here the same, that they would know that you are the true and living God and that they would know about your son, Jesus Christ, the perfect imprint of who you are. And Father, ultimately pray that you will produce worship in their hearts. If not for the very first time, would you produce worship in their hearts so that they can know you in the same way that the Bible proclaims, in the same way that we proclaim every single day of the week that you are the risen King, Lord. So, Father, I pray that your spirit, with your spirit even now, as, as I pray with your spirit um, all throughout this time, Father, would it be working on our hearts? Would you give attentiveness to your word? And, Father, I pray that for me, help me not to be consumed by anything other than simply placing before your people your word, and making Jesus the biggest and the ultimate and the most banging thing out there, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A term that's often thrown around a lot in kind of our circles and in churches is this idea of family. And for many of us, um, I think it would be fair to assume that all of us come from different backgrounds and different experiences. And so when that term is thrown out, it can cause a, very, a variety of different responses. For some, family is, um, or even the mention of it, it brings back fond memories of, of times that we went on vacations with our family. Times where we spent playing video games with dad. Times of, of, of great happiness and joy. But for others, the mention of family only brings back not fond memories, but it brings back nightmares. It brings back pain and emotions of regret because we realize that, man, what we experienced growing up, there's this burden within us that knows that that isn't how things should be. And so regardless of where everyone in here lands, I think we all can find common ground in the statement that we all would agree there's no such thing as a perfect family. Every family has its fair share of problems. Every family has its fair share of issues. But if that's true, a friend of mine used to say that something that stuck with me for a long time, and he said, man, the church is not like a family. It is a family. And if we're honest, it's a lot easier to recite that than it is to actually live that out. 
Let me say that again. It's a lot easier to read. So what we want to do today, what I believe that the book of Jude is drawing our attention to, is it's going to highlight what it means to really be a part, be a part of the family of God. And what Jude is going to do is he's not going to mince words to cause us to, to help us in that understanding that, no, he's going to be completely truthful with us. And so there's going to be three things that I want to draw out today's text. Today we're going to be in the book of Jude, and we're going to go through verses 1 through 7. Three things that I hope to draw, draw out from this text. The first one is this. What it means to be a part of God's family, it firstly means to know that we belong to God. That's the very first thing. There's assurance and confidence that to be a part of God's family means that you know who you belong to. The second thing that we'll draw from this text is that to be a part of God's family means that we all have a responsibility. Can I get everybody to say all with me? All. We all have a responsibility. And lastly, the third point is that to be a part of God's family means to know who's the boss. It means to know who ultimately is in control. And so I've titled this series, um, this being the first part of it, I've titled it Family Matters. And yes, if you're wondering where I got that from, I got it from the 90s TV show. <laughs> but we're really going to deal with not only the reality that family does matter, but we're also going to have to address some family matters. We're going to have to deal with some family business going on with the church. And so that's where Jude begins. So join with me as we read the text, and then we're going to dive right, right on in. Jude chapter 1. Well, there's only one chapter, so Jude verse 1. <laughs> it reads, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once formally or fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who do not stay within their own position of authority, but left excuse me, their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal life. The first, part, the first point that I mentioned comes from verses 1 and 2, and it is to know that we belong. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, a band brother of James. Let me stop there. It's easy for us that when we're reading the Bible and we come to the introductory remarks to just simply glaze over them to kind of act as though these just serve to introduce the meaning or introduce a person, but they really have no benefit to us as Christians. Well, I beg to differ simply because to include it in his word, then that simply means that there's importance and there's meaning behind it that we have to grasp in order to fully understand what it is he intends to tell us. And so when here in Jude, the introduction starts with Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. We've got to know who Jude is. Jude was the half-brother of Jesus and brother of James' apostles. So Jude could have easily name-dropped in order to give this false sense of authority to those he's writing to say, nah, the person who's writing, yeah, I'm the brother of Jesus, right? He could have boasted in that reality, but the simple fact of what Jude wants to communicate is that though I am the half-brother of Jesus, that's not the identity that I've been given now. The identity that I've been given supersedes my relational, uh, my, my relation to this man because I no longer see Jesus simply as my brother. I see Jesus as Lord. And so you have to step back and you have to ask yourself, how is it that a man who grew up playing with this guy, who grew up seeing this guy sick, who grew up just belonging to the same family, now in turn starts off by saying, now I'm a servant. Who else do you know that has just one day decided that I'm going to start worshiping my sibling? 
This doesn't just happen naturally. This is a supernatural event. And so Jude has to help us understand that, look, knowing Jesus as brother didn't do anything for me. But knowing Jesus as Lord now, knowing Jesus as God and as Savior, that's changed everything. And so now my aim and my identity isn't placed in that. No, I've been given a new identity. Paul goes so far as to say, no, we are new creatures. We've been given a new identity in Christ. And therefore, the old has gone and the new has come. And so Jude lets us know, no, refer to me not as brother of Jesus. Refer to me as servant of Christ. He continues on. And then he goes into not only telling us the effect of what has happened in him knowing Jesus, But now he points us to the cause. How did this happen? And so he goes down, and as he tracks with us, he says, uh, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, but I'm writing to those who are called. To be called is such a beautiful picture for us. Because for those that are Christians, we know that we didn't one day wake up and say, man, today I'm going to follow Jesus. We didn't one day wake up and say, today I want to give my life to God. No, for all of us who proclaim to be followers of Christ, it wasn't simply a a conscious decision to follow and seek after God. No, it was an interruption. It was us pursuing after the things that we thought would be best for us, pursuing after our careers and our families and our goals, and God just steps in and says, nah, I'm going to mix it all up. One of my favorite cartoon characters is Wiley the Coyote. And the Roadrunner. How many people are familiar with that? We got some 80s babies in here. (laughs) So the thing about Wiley and the Coyote was, man, Wiley would always be trying to chase after this bird because he was hungry. So Wiley, in every cartoon, he's trying to figure out, how can I catch up to this fast bird? And he does what, he's willing to go um, to the ends of the earth to simply attain his goal. One of my favorite episodes, though, is Wiley. He's running and chasing after the roadrunner. He has his fork and his knife in hand, and he's just waiting, waiting. If I can try harder, if I can try harder, finally I'll get him. But the roadrunner is too quick for Wiley the Coyote. So the roadrunner hits into hyperdrive and gets far in advance, far in front of Wiley Coyote. And so what happens is, which is crazy about cartoons, because somehow in the middle of a desert, the roadrunner finds these cans of paint. Who is in the middle of the desert and finds cans of paint? So he finds these cans of paint, and he ends up erasing the path that he was originally on and steering the road in a direction that would divert Wiley the Coyote. Now, what Wiley doesn't know is that as he's running, when he gets to that point, what the roadrunner has done is he steered the road to eventually lead off a cliff. So Wiley gets up there, and he finally goes, and he bends the venture off. It's late to turn only into the point. It's only at the point to which it's too late to turn back, that Wiley realizes that he's been duped. That Wiley realizes that now I'm at the end of the road, and now the only thing that there is to do is to go down to his impending, uh, uh, his impending death. And so for us as Christians, for us as those who have professed to be followers of Christ, aren't we grateful that God didn't let us uh, continue to go chase after we thought was right that would lead us to simply fall to the bottom of the cliff. No, God interrupts us, and he says, no, I know you want to chase after that. I know you want that, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop you right where you are, and I'm going to call you to be mine. I'm going to call you to know me. I'm going to call you to love me. This is what God does for us. And so to know that we belong first starts with this real sense of God has called us. But he doesn't stop there. He continues on, and he says, and he describes us as those who are beloved in God the Father. My wife and I, we have four kids, and um, technically, because of the fact that we brought them into this world, they technically belong to us, right? But what would happen if I never cared for my children? What would it be like if I never provided for them financially or physically or with clothing? If I never played with them, if I never told them that I loved them, if I never embraced them as my own, if I never taught them about ways in which they can be successful and honor God in this, in this current life. Though technically, they would see me as their parent biologically, they wouldn't consider me to be a good and loving father. Well, in the same way, Jude is letting us know that, man, we are beloved. We are the beloved in God the Father. God isn't a deadbeat dad. 
He doesn't abdicate his parental responsibilities by simply birthing us and then wanting to have nothing to do with us. What God does is he brings us into the family and then he cares for us as his family. God wants to not just care for us from a, a, a ethereal um, way of thinking, but no, God wants to care for us tangibly. He wants to provide us with things. He wants to let us know that regardless of how hard and difficult things are, he's still with us. This is what God wants to extend to us. But not only that, he's not just loving us with some ordinary type of love, right? He's not just loving us in the same way that we as people love each other. He's not fickle. He doesn't have conditions. But no, he's going to love us with an unconditional love. He's going to love us with the same love that he has for his son. Matthew 3, 17, we see here a picture of God, of Jesus looking up to the heavens, and it says a voice appeared. And that voice says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God looks at his son and he says, I'm pleased with that man right there. He's like me. But not only that, John alluded to this last week. Pastor John alluded to this in John 17, 26, and he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The love that God has for us is the same love that he had for his son, that when God brings us in his family, he makes his own. Therefore, we now share in the same intimacy, in the same type of relationship that Jesus had with God the Father. And so this is not an ordinary love. This is not the same thing as how a man would love his spouse. This is God saying, no, I love you so much that I'm going to give you the same possession and promises that I gave to my son, Jesus. And thirdly, he doesn't stop there. Jude goes on and he continues to say, and kept for Jesus Christ. And kept for Jesus Christ. John Calvin says this, he says, at any moment, Satan might catch us or might snatch us a hundred times over into his ready clutches. Were we not safe in the protection of Christ? God does what no earthly parent can do. And that is to ensure the safety and the protection of our souls, not at the point in which he brings us into the family salvation, but at the point to where we'll be standing with Jesus for the rest of eternity. He keeps us all the way, not just some of the way. And so to be kept by God means that what Jesus is doing with us as his people is that he's saying, I'm building the family. I'm giving to my son those whom I want to be in our family. And then not only that, is that one day Jesus, because he's purchased us, he values us so much that he views us as his treasure and as a possession. And you know the thing about possessions is that a person who doesn't deem something valuable is prone to lose it and not take care of it, right? That if somebody gives you a gift that you really don't like, then the chances are in a year you're going to have no idea where that gift is. God's not like that. God gives, uh, calls his people and then he keeps us, and it's his responsibility to ensure that in the same way I chose and called people to be my own, is the same way that one day I will present to Jesus this great treasure so that all would know that God is faithful to his word. This is what God does for us. He keeps us, right? But he doesn't stop there. It wasn't enough simply for Jude to tell us about how people come to faith, fact that God loves and he cares for his people. And not only that, he keeps us to an end, but he tells us what God extends to us. He starts with, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Mercy is God's goodness and kindness towards needy people. So the challenge is for us as Christians is we often believe we wake up every moment of the day, it seems, and we forget that we're actually in need of God's mercy. And so we think that we can go about doing things for God without God and that somehow he's going to produce for something, um, something that's pleasing to him on our behalf. That's not how God works. And so Jude wants to write, write, he wants to shoot off a prayer real quick to let us know what God extends to his children. So he starts with mercy, God's goodness and kindness and love towards the needy. One quote says, there is never a moment when we don't need God's mercy. And in his mercy, there is never a moment when he does not grant it. The Bible goes as far to say, you know what? God has not only provided for us for today, but he's provided for us 
for tomorrow. That every day for the Christian, when you wake up every single morning, God isn't waiting for you to ask for mercy. No, he already has a bundle of mercy standing at the front door. And he's saying, look, I've already given you not mercies that were old from yesterday. But no, I'm giving you brand new mercies for tomorrow. And that it's not dependent upon you asking for it. No, I just want to lavish it on you. This is what God gives to us. And he says, may peace be multiplied with you. This isn't simply peace of God squashing beef. As Christians, we know we're no longer enemies of God. He's made us children of God. Now, this is not what this piece is talking about. This piece is referring to our experience with God. How do we experience God in trials? How do we experience God in suffering? How do we experience God on a daily basis of communing with him and fellowshiping with him and knowing him. This is the peace that he says I want to be multiplied to you, that we would find ultimate satisfaction in Christ alone. That's what he's praying for, for us. And lastly, he says, love be multiplied to you. One of my favorite groups, and I mentioned it a little earlier, he says this, the ordinary just won't do. I need a love that's tried and true. And you can only find it in Jesus. Ain't nobody with me. Nobody know who commission is? Come on, man. I need, come on. I need some help, y'all. Come on now. Our confidence in our assurance is that salvation alone belongs to God. We didn't do anything to help him accomplish it. We don't do anything to help him complete the process. God alone has done the heavy lifting for us. And what he wants to give us, what he wants us to know is that I'm in the business of bringing together my family. And not only that, is that to belong to my family, to belong to me, is to know how I get down. And we serve a God who gives good gifts. Amen? Amen. I wish I could stay on that point a little bit longer, but we got um, 26 minutes. So I'm going to keep pressing, keep pressing. Um, Track down with me to verses 3 through 5, the next point. Next point is for us to know that we all have a responsibility. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to all the saints. For certain people have crept in on others who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master. To know, that we, to know what it means to be a part of God's family is to know that we all have a responsibility. You can often tell about the closeness of your relationships with somebody by how willing they are to be honest with you, right? When you think about the closest relationships that you're in, whether you're married or with a close friend, typically what's an indicator of the strength of your relationship is when that person can be truly honest with you. And the reason why you're able to be receptive to their honesty is because you know their intent isn't to hurt you. Matter of fact, let me backtrack. Their intent isn't to destroy you. Their intent is to temporarily hurt you in order to protect you from something that's far worse. And so what we see here is that God is not in the business of mincing words. God is not in the business of flattering us. God is not in the business of giving us lip service as to, to simply make us feel better about ourselves. No, God treats us like we see in Proverbs 27, 6, when he says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the, um, receiptful are the kisses of an enemy. That's how God functions with people. He's not an enemy towards us. No, he's a true and faithful friend. And so when he has to confront us, he wants us to know, I'm not confronting you to steal or rob you from joy. No, I'm actually trying to give you greater joy because what I have to say is going to protect you from all of the dangers that you can't see right here and right now. And so he starts with, um, beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, he's saying, man, I would love to sit and shop, shop with you about how what God has done in our lives and how good everything is. But right now, there's something of greater importance. I've got to deal with something because if I don't deal with it, if I'm not honest with you, then you can continue on the track of thinking that everything is okay. And so he he goes in and he tells them, contend for the faith. When God sees his church or his people veering away, he has no choice but to intervene. 
in Texas, there's these things called, um, there's these things on the road called rumble strips. And so if you're on a highway, on the sides of the, of the road are these things, these little bump things that they place there for the simple purpose of reminding sleepy drivers, hey, you're headed for danger. And so for me, I hate driving at night because I know I am prone to fall asleep. But if a person is driving on the road and they fall asleep and they start to veer off of the path that was intended for them to drive in, these rumble strips, no one views them as an annoyance. No one views them as a hindrance to their sleep. (laughs) Who is angry at the rumble sticks because they woke you up because you was driving off the road? Nobody. These rumble strips are simply there for the purpose of awaking us from our slumber, causing us to steer back in the right direction, and then ultimately to preserve our lives. That's what these rumble sticks are for. And so when God sees his church fearing away, he's going to say, look, pay attention to the rumble strips, y'all. I've got to tell you to contend because you somehow have gotten lost in simply doing church as church. And as a result of you just being concerned about you and yours, people have crept in and they're causing chaos. They're hurting my family. And not only are they hurting my family, they're hurting my witness to those that look at y'all. Feel the urgency of Jude's words. Feel his urgency. Contend for the faith. He's not saying contend for the faith, guys. No. Contend for the faith. Wake up. This appeal, though, doesn't just fall on a few of us. He already mentioned that he's writing to those who are called, who are loved, and who are kept. So we already know, we can assume that God is speaking to all of us. So if he's giving an appeal, it's not just to the pastors. It's not just to those that are gifted in teaching. It's not just to the most eloquent. It's not just to men. It's not just to women. It's to everyone. It's an all call. That word contend literally in the Greek means to agonize. It's a term about wrestling and contending with an opponent and giving everything that we have in order to receive the ultimate prize. Contend for the faith. It's given to everybody. This is why we as a church take church membership so Seriously, how can people contend for something when we don't even know who truly belongs to us? How can we be responsible for one another if there's no agreement or commitment for us to even be responsible to each other? What God is saying is that, man, I want to paint a picture for you of what a healthy church is. It isn't that we've got all of these seats filled. No, a healthy church is when everybody takes full responsibility for the discipleship of each other. That's what a healthy church is. And so for us as a new church plant, this is what that means for us. Our encouragement to every single member of our church is that you should be in some relationship or some group to where people are able to know your life. You should be, resp- you should be in somebody's life who can directly point towards you either having a super or spiritual impact on them or them having one on you. Discipleship was never about, or let me back forward, let me backtrack. Christianity was never about you and yours. We perpetuate this truth that Christianity is about your personal relationship with Christ. And that is true. It is a personal relationship with Christ. But Christianity was never meant for that to, to, for that to only be the case. Yes, God saves individuals, but he saves them into a family. And so for us, we have to take responsibility for what it means to truly be a follower of Jesus. And that means that I am my brother's keeper. That it's not enough for me simply to know someone's business and just to ignore it as if somehow God is pleased in that. No, our responsibility is to say, when I see my brother caught in their sin, that I'm going to love them enough to gently Come to them and remind them of God's word, remind them of God's truth and his acceptance, but then also have the commitment to be willing to walk with them as they pursue restoration. Isn't that what God does to us? Does God correct us and then simply leave us in our own mess? No, he comes aside us. He comes beside us and he gives us the strength tangibly seen through a Christian who may be stronger, 
coming alongside one who is weaker and saying, I know you don't have the strength right now to pray, but I'm going to pray on your behalf. I know you don't have the strength to read your word, but let's get time together and let me just read God's word to you. I know you don't have the strength to come to church, so let me call you and to remind you and to tell you I will pick you up if you're willing to come. This is what it means to walk with people. This is what it means to be a part of God's family. In order to contend well, we know we have to know what we're called to contend for. And he tells us that we are contending for the faith. Not a faith, not one of many, but singular, the faith. Which means that there's only one true faith. That regardless of what people in the world say, that there's all these different ways to God, that there can't just be one day, one way, God has revealed to people that there is only one right way to God. There's only one way to repair the brokenness of our relationship, and that is by Jesus Christ alone. So he tells us that we are to contend for the faith, but not just any faith. It's one that was delivered to all the saints. It's good news that our confidence in our faith doesn't stem from a group of people creating something for themselves. That, that unlike other religions, Christianity wasn't devised by the church, but it was given to the church. That means that it came from outside of this world, from somewhere else that we know to be God, and that he has given us these truths in order to both protect us and to enrich us. Do you think about reading God's word as beneficial to your soul? Do you think about the contents that were within God's word as being something given by God to help us to be godly? This faith was passed down to us. And not only that, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's like a good recipe has been passed down from generation to generation. It ain't something that we got to fix up and alter and tamper with. No, the recipe was good enough to keep it as it is, and as it's given freely to others, all you got to do is follow it to the T. That's what God has given to us in our faith. He's given something perfect to us. And all he's telling us is that we need to be guardians of that. We need to guard the truth, the contents of our faith. We need to guard it and protect it. Because to have bad doctrine leads to bad living. To have bad doctrine, bad understanding of who God is and what he wants for us, that ultimately leads to bad living. How can we live for God and want to be like him if we don't know how he's like? That's the purpose of God's word, to reveal himself to us. I want to land on this this point a little bit more and press into it. Because I think that there's something, a real issue that we got to address and deal with in our church. we got to stop thinking that theology is something only reserved for pastors and Christian leaders. we got to understand that God has given his word to all of us. And so in the same way that a pastor may be able to rightly divide God's word in such a way to where you guys hear it and you're impressed by it, like, Dad, that was dope. God is saying, nah, I want you to be able to do that as well. Don't let it stop with the leader. No, you embrace that reality. You press into God's word deep enough to where you can communicate and preach it, whether you have a platform or position or not. This is what God offers us. And so practically, let's just go through three things of what this means. Contending for the faith. My encouragement to our church is going to be live out what you already know. Live out what you already know. I find it burdensome sometimes when I hear the responses of Christians when it comes to hearing something that they've heard before, and they're bored with it. They're bored with it. It didn't just do it for me. The practice didn't say it in a cool way to where I could feel as though I was getting something good. God's word was with, with God's word was with God in eternity. He gave it to his apostles and then gave it to those that were with him and then he gives it to his church. There is nothing boring about God's word. So if we find our place 
uh, find a place where we feel we need to be tickled in our ears to feel as though God is doing something and we need to have these fuzzies within us, then the problem isn't with God. The problem is with us. It's a heart issue. And so the beauty of God's word is that it's timeless. Not only is it timeless, but it doesn't need editing. It doesn't need revising. It's perfect for the, uh, it was perfect back 2,000 years ago. It's perfect for today and it will be perfect for eternity. This is what God gives us. This is God's word. Live out what you already know. Stop trying to get more information so that you can impress your brothers and sisters. Stop doing that, y'all. That's not what it means to follow Christ. All of us have more information about God than we could live out for probably for the rest of eternity. Second point. Study with the intent of being able to communicate what you learn to someone else. Study with the intent of being able to communicate what you learn to someone else. When we spend time with Jesus, when we sit down and we read his word and we pray and we fellowship with him, what God has given us in these, in these times isn't simply for us. God may give us a loaf of bread that is rich, it's nourishing to our soul, and it's good, but God also will place people in your life who now in turn what he's given to you, he's going to want you to break off and pass out the morsels of that bread so that he can feed and enrich and benefit his people. What God gives for you isn't just for you. Everything, God's gifts, his talents, his resources has never been about just you. It has been about the blessing of others. That's why he says it's better to give than to receive is because now as we commune and fellowship with our God, we can now go to our weaker brothers and sisters and we say, I know it's tough, but I've got a word of encouragement to you. And now I can edify you and I can use my lips to speak um, encouragement to you. Study with the intent of being able to communicate what you learn. The second part of that is we got to be we got to stop being just okay with being familiar with God's word. Being familiar with something is okay when it comes to Microsoft Word. You can be familiar and know just enough to get by without knowing the entirety of the software. Being familiar is okay when it comes to a restaurant menu. That's perfectly fine. All of us have our spots to where we know two or three good items that we can tell somebody about and, and, and typecast that restaurant as being dope, right? Being familiar with God's word, though, is not okay. Having a cursory or elementary understanding of God's word is not okay. The standard, the bar has to be risen to a higher place to where we view God's word as, God, I want to know your word so well. I want to be able to rightfully protect your word and what's, what's true so much so that when people come and infiltrate the church and they try to speak on your behalf and tell others who, how you are when you're not that way, that I can know your word and I can respond appropriate to you to tell you you're a lie. That's not the God that I serve. And thirdly, we need to take responsibility. Or we need to seriously take responsibility both to know and defend Christian doctrine. We need to take seriously our responsibility to both know and to defend Christian doctrine. For most of us, when you say study, it brings back horror, like memories, because we think back to our college days, and for those that are in college, you're like, what, you're telling me I got to study? Man, I'm trying to get out of school so I never have to study again. When we think about studying, though, don't think of it like attaining information to pass a test. That's not the type of study that God is talking about here. When we say study, we're talking about how a man would study his wife, how a woman would study their husband, how kids would study their parents. When you love somebody, you're attentive to them. You want to know all, everything about them. You want to know what they like, what displeases them how they function. You want to know how they think about everything as it relates to life. And so when we say study, we're saying study like that. Study with the intent of finding Jesus in the scriptures with the purpose of becoming more intimate with your God. Study is to lead to greater intimacy. It's not to lead to greater intellection. 
Greater intellect. Messed up my point. Greater intellect. <laughs> Paul will refer in verses 4 about the people that have crept in. And he says they're ungodly. He says they pervert God's grace. They think that grace is an opportunity to sin all the more. If you're in this room and you think that what it means to be a Christian is to simply ramble off, I'm a Christian or I made a profession of faith, but it has never led to life transformation, then, y'all, you have not understood grace. Grace is something that when you encounter it, when you experience it, it leads to worship and living according to God's word because it's not cheap. It costs God something. It costs them something. Why would God send his son to take on all of the wrath that was rightly deserved or reserved for us to take that on, to be crucified on the cross simply so you can just utter a prayer and live any old way? That would make God to be weak. The God that we're talking about is that when he gives us grace, when we taste of his grace, that's going to ultimately lead to now, God, I see you right before you are. And now I hear what you want from me in my life. And therefore, I conform to what it is that you want from me or I pursue obedience to you, not out of obligation only, but because I love you. The motivation is because we love God. Paul rebukes this so much in saying that, man, shall we sin all the more? So that grace may abound? Shall we keep on sinning just because we know what God has done for us? Absolutely not. I'm not talking about perfection. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about pursuit of holiness. We're talking about pursuing to be like God because now we've come into relationship with him. The last point is that to be a part of God's family means to know who's the boss. Verse 5, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper place, or left, uh, left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal change under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. It was about the time of, of about 11 years old, where I was a young boy, and some of you men can probably um, can relate to this, that there's just this point where if your dad was in the home, you get to an age where as you start to put on muscle and you start to get a little smarter, that you think that you could take your dad out. And so for me, I remember one time of just thinking, like, I was tired of hearing my dad tell me what to do, and I just wanted to be rebellious. And so I remember us sitting at the dinner table, and my, and my dad asked me something, and I just was so smart with him. I just gave him this smart, like, this disrespectful response, and my dad so calmly just pointed at me and said, stand up. So he tells me to stand up, and so I stand up, and I'm kind of clutching my fist behind my back. And, and so he's like, man, uh, scoot over a little bit. Come over here. So I scoot over. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to get down if we need to go. <laughs> but then he so carefully takes the top of my shirt, balls it into a ball, and literally it was like he moved an inch. Just goes like that, and I go <laughs> flying back against the fridge. And it was at that point that I realized my proper place. I said daddy's strength man I said daddy's strength but it was at that point that I realized that I was the son and he was the dad what Jude wants to remind his church of is that man God is the boss he's in control he doesn't need our help and he doesn't need our assistance God is in control Jude is reminding us this is how God gets down and he wants to shine light on the holiness of God. Why does he have to remind the church of the holiness of God? Because we so often forget that God is holy. 
we so often function as if we don't know a God who's not like us, who's set apart from us, who's far superior to everything and anything in this created world. That's what it means to be God, for God to be holy. But not only there, what it means to, for God to be holy is to mean that he has to also be just. So he wants to point their attention back to the Old Testament. One thing on the Old Testament I think would be encouraging to our church. Most of our experiences in church has been that majority of the preaching comes from the New Testament. And we've become almost um, unimpressed with the Old Testament. Who in their study just thinks, hey, today I'm going to go, I'm going to go and I'm going to read about Ezekiel. Who in their study is like, man, I want to go to Second Chronicles and I want to dive in and get into that. We have this, this almost callousness when it comes to the entirety of God's word. And we need to be reminded that when these New Testament authors are writing to us, they're not pointing us back to the New Testament. It didn't exist. They're pointing us back to the Old Testament. And the thing about it is you will never have right understanding or we will never have right understanding of what God is saying in the New Testament until we have understanding of what he has said in the Old. Jude wants to point us back. And he gives us three accounts that happen in the Old Testament. Three accounts that these people will be completely familiar with. And so he's going to point to God's holiness and his justice as dispensed on three groups of people. He starts first with the Jews. He starts first with God's chosen people. If you're not familiar with who the Jews are, the Jews were people who God, a nation that God had chosen to be his representation for the rest of the world. And so what does he say here? He starts with Jesus rescued Uh, Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, he's referring to the great exodus that took place when the slaves who had been in slavery by the Egyptians for a long time now have been rescued and freed from that slavery. But he says that though he highlights Christ's mercy first, Jesus rescued a people out of Egypt, what closely follows behind it is God's judgment and his condemnation on those who wouldn't believe. Let's understand that clearly about who Jesus is. He's leading off with mercy. He's extending opportunity for us to know him. However, there will be a day where judgment follows. He will condemn those who do not rightfully place their trust in Jesus as Lord and as Savior. So he talks about his, the Jews, chosen nation. He judges them. He goes down into angelic beings, those who were created for God or created by God for him, those who were created to simply worship him and to serve him, he says they were not even exempt from the justice of God. That when they got out of pocket and they thought they got too, um, they swolled up a little bit, what he says is, nah, y'all ain't even exempt. I'm going to have to discipline and judge you as well. And thirdly, he talks about entire towns and cities rebelling against God, living immoral lives, boasting in that. God, too, judges cities, towns. All of these, they say, are to serve as a reminder. Serve as a reminder to us that God takes sin seriously. And the reason why he took it so seriously that he was willing to send his son, Jesus Christ, to bore within his own body the sins of all of us, to die, to be buried, and then eventually raised from the dead is the same reason why he can say with complete confidence and complete boldness to call people to be holy as he is holy. To be a part of God's family means to know who's the boss. Christ is not simply somebody who wants to, who who only is going to come give us opportunity to say that we profess belief in him, but causes no real impact or change. To encounter Jesus is like encountering an 18-wheeler on the freeway. If you're hit by it, everything changes. I think Jude also wants to let us know or remind us of Though Jesus came as a baby and lived the life that we couldn't live, and though he extends salvation and grace and mercy, one day he's going to return. 
one day he's going to return. He's coming back, and this is the hope that we have, is that one day he will come and he'll make everything right. He'll restore everything. But this time when he comes, it's going to be a little different. Revelations 19, it talks about how in, in one day when Jesus comes back for his return, the skies will crack open, and then we'll look up and everybody will see a rider sitting on a white horse, and he's not coming alone. He's coming with his squad, those that are oh, pure and dressed in fine linens. And this time when he comes, it talks about how he won't use swords and spears or automatic weapons to defeat his enemies. No, what he's going to do is his very words are going to crush nations. He's going to be spitting his, the word of God, and it's going to rightfully and justfully judge everything and everyone. And not only that, it paints a picture of Jesus with his eyes blazing with fire, with his gown drenched in blood. And when Jesus returns, those who have not placed their trust in Christ will be rightfully judged and condemned with the holy, perfect judgment. We will be without excuse. That's how Jesus is coming back. But the opportunity that we are presenting to you is an opportunity to know Jesus as Lord and as Savior, not as judge. Every Sunday is an opportunity for you to encounter this merciful and this loving, but also this holy God who would send his son for us. What greater love have you ever encountered or experienced than someone who considered, who you considered an enemy would die on your behalf and extend to you opportunity to not just escape the wrath of God, but to know your creator intimately? is what the gospel is. So, in closing, to know that we're part of God's family means to know who we belong to. It means to know that we all have a responsibility and that our responsibility leads to our protection, not our destruction. And lastly, to know that God is the boss. He is a ruler. He is king. And though people may creep in here unnoticed, God's seen them all the time. So he's going to simply let us know as a church, be on guard, be ready, be responsible. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.